TED Audio Collective. Support comes from Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. The best place to see stars is at home with Prime Video. Get everything included with Prime, like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, starring Donald Glover and Maya Erskine. Rent or buy hits like Mean Girls, starring Renee Rapp. Or add-on channels like Max for the HBO original Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. You've never seen so many stars in one place. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. Prime membership not required to rent or buy. Prime membership required for add-on subscriptions. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Support for TED Talks Daily is from Progressive, home of the Name Your Price tool. You can say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. It's easy to start a quote. Visit Progressive.com to get started. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This TED Talk features philosopher Michael Patrick Lynch, recorded live at TED 2017. So imagine that you had your smartphone miniaturized and hooked up directly to your brain. Now, if you had this sort of brain chip, you'd be able to upload and download to the internet at the speed of thought. Accessing social media or Wikipedia would be a lot like, well, from the inside at least, like consulting your own memory. It would be as easy and as intimate as thinking. But would it make it easier for you to know what's true? Just because a way of accessing information is faster doesn't mean it's more reliable, of course, and it doesn't mean that we would all interpret it the same way. And it doesn't mean that you would be any better at evaluating it. In fact, it might even be worse because, you know, more data, less time for evaluation. You know, something like this is already happening to us right now. We already carry a world of information around in our pockets. But it seems as if the more information that we share and access online, the more difficult it can be for us to tell the difference between what's real and what's fake. It's as if we know more, but understand less. Now, you know, it's a feature of modern life, I suppose, that large swaths of the public live in isolated information bubbles. You know, we're polarized, not just over values, but over the facts. And one reason for that is that the data analytics that drive the internet get us not just more information, but more of the information that we want. Our online life is personalized. Everything from the ads we read to the news that comes down our Facebook feed is tailored to satisfy our preferences. And so while we get more information, a lot of that information ends up reflecting ourselves as much as it does reality. It ends up, I suppose, inflating our bubbles rather than bursting them. And so maybe it's no surprise that we're in a situation, a paradoxical situation, of thinking that we know so much more and yet not agreeing on what it is we know. So how are we going to solve this problem of knowledge polarization? Well, one obvious you know, tactic is to 
try to fix our technology, to redesign our digital platforms so as to be, make them less susceptible to polarization. And I'm happy to report that many smart people at Google and Facebook are working on just that. And these projects are vital. And I think that fixing technology is obviously really important. But I don't think that technology alone, fixing it, is going to solve the problem of knowledge polarization. I don't think that, because I don't think at the end of the day it is a technological problem. I think it's a human problem, having to do with how we think and what we value. In order to solve it, I think we're going to need help. We're going to need help from psychology and, and political science, but we're also going to need help, I think, from philosophy. Because to solve the problem of knowledge polarization, we're going to need to reconnect with one fundamental philosophical idea, that we live in a common reality. Now, the idea of a common reality is like, <clears throat> I suppose, a lot of philosophical concepts, easy to state, but mysteriously difficult to put into practice. To really accept it, I think we need to do three things, each of which is a challenge right now. First, we need to believe in truth. You might have noticed that our culture is having something of a troubled relationship with that concept right now. You know, it, it seems as if we disagree so much that, as one political commentator put it not long, long ago, it's as if there are no facts anymore. But that thought, that thought is actually an expression of a, a, a sort of seductive line of argument that, that's in the air. And it goes like this. We just can't step outside of our own perspectives. We can't step outside of our biases. Every time we try, we just get more information from our perspective. So, this line of thought goes, we might as well admit that objective truth is an illusion, or it doesn't matter, because either we'll never know what it is, or it doesn't exist in the first place. Now, that's not a new philosophical thought skepticism about truth. And during the end of the last century, as some of you know, it was very popular in certain academic circles. But it really goes back all the way to the Greek philosopher Protagoras, if not farther back. Protagoras said that objective truth was an illusion because man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. That can seem like a bracing bit of real politic to people, or liberating, because it allows each of us to discover our, or make, our own truth. But actually, I think it's a bit of self-serving rationalization disguised as philosophy. It confuses the difficulty of being certain with the impossibility of truth. I mean, look, of course it's difficult to be certain about anything. We might all be living in the matrix, you might have a brain chip in your head feeding you all the wrong information. But in practice, we do agree on all sorts of facts. We agree that bullets can kill people. We agree that you can't flap your arms and fly. We agree, or we should, that there is an external reality, and ignoring it can get you hurt. Nonetheless, skepticism about truth can be tempting, because it allows us to rationalize away our own biases. When we do that, we're sort of like the guy in the movie who knew he was living 
in the Matrix, but decided he liked it there anyway. After all, getting what you want feels good. Being right all the time feels good. So often it's easier for us to wrap ourselves in our cozy information bubbles, live in bad faith, and take those bubbles as the measure of reality. An example, I think, of how this bad faith gets into our action is our reaction to the phenomenon of fake news. The fake news that spread on the internet during the American uh, presidential election of 2016 was designed to feed into our biases, designed to inflate our bubbles. But what was really striking about it was not just that it fooled so many people, what was really striking to me about fake news, the phenomenon, is how quickly it itself became the subject of knowledge polarization. So much so that the very term, the very term fake news now just means new story I don't like. That's an example of the bad faith towards the truth that I'm talking about. But the really, I think, dangerous thing about skepticism with regard to truth is that it leads to despotism. Man is the measure of all things, inevitably becomes the man is the measure of all things. Just as, you know, uh, every man for himself always seems to turn out to be only the strong survive. At the end of Orwell's 1984, the thought policeman O'Brien is torturing the protagonist Winston Smith into believing two plus two equals five. What O'Brien says is the point is that he wants to convince Smith that whatever the party says is the truth, and the truth is whatever the party says. And what O'Brien knows is that once this thought is accepted, critical dissent is impossible. You can't speak truth to power if the power speaks truth by definition. Okay, so I said that in order to accept that we really live in a common reality, we have to do three things. The first thing is to believe in truth. The second thing can be summed up by the Latin phrase that Kant took as the motto for the Enlightenment, saper aud, or dare to know, or as Kant glossed it, dare to know for yourself. Now, I think in the early days of the Internet, a lot of us thought that information technology was always going to make it easier for us to know for ourselves. And, and of course, in many ways, it has. But as the internet has become more and more a part of our lives, our reliance on it, our use of it, has become often more passive. Much of what we know today, we Google now. We download prepackaged sets of facts and sort of shuffle them along the assembly line of social media. Now, Google knowing is useful precisely because it involves a sort of intellectual outsourcing. We offload our effort onto a network of others and algorithms. And that allows us, of course, to not clutter our minds with all sorts of facts. We can just download them when we need them, and that's awesome. But there's a difference between downloading a set of facts and really understanding how or why those facts are as they are. Understanding why a particular disease spreads, or how a mathematical proof works, or why your friend is depressed, 
involves more than just downloading. It's going to require, most likely, doing some work for yourself, having a little creative insight, using your imagination, getting out into the field, doing the experiment, working through the proof, talking to someone. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that we should stop Google knowing. I'm just saying we shouldn't overvalue it either. We need to find ways of encouraging forms of knowing that are more active, and don't always involve passing off our effort into our bubble. Because the thing about Google knowing is that too often it ends up being bubble knowing, and bubble knowing means always being right. But daring to know. Daring to understand means risking the possibility that you could be wrong. It means risking the possibility that what you want and what's true are different things. Which brings me to the third thing that I think we need to do if we want to accept that we live in a common reality. That third thing is have a little humility. By humility here, I mean epistemic humility, which means just in a sense. Knowing that you don't know it all, but it also means something more than that. It means seeing your worldview as open to improvement by the evidence and experience of others. Seeing your worldview as open to improvement by the evidence and experience of others. That's more than just being open to change. It's more than just being open to self-improvement. It means seeing your knowledge as capable of enhancing or being enriched by what others contribute. That's Part of what it's involved in recognizing that there's a common reality that you too are responsible to. Now, I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that our society is not particularly great at enhancing、uh, or encouraging that sort of humility. I mean, that's partly because, well, we tend to confuse arrogance and confidence, and it's partly because, well, you know, arrogance is just easier. It's just easier. To think of yourself as knowing it all—it's just easier as thinking of yourself as as having it all figured out. But that's another example of the bad faith towards the truth that I've been talking about. So the concept of a common reality, like a lot of philosophical concepts, can seem so obvious that we can look right past it and forget why it's important. Democracies can't function. If their citizens don't strive, at least some of the time, to inhabit a common space—a space where they can pass ideas back and forth, when and especially when they disagree—but you can't strive to inhabit that space if you don't already accept that you live in the same reality. To accept that, we've got to believe in truth. We've got to encourage more active ways of knowing. And we've got to have the humility to realize that we're not the measure of all things. We may yet one day realize the vision of having the internet in our brains. But if we want that to be liberating and not terrifying, if we want it to expand our understanding and not just our passive knowing, we need to remember that our perspectives, as wondrous. As beautiful as they are, are just that perspectives on one reality. Thank you.
For more TED Talks, go to TED.com.